In a world full of smart devices, shouldn't your printer be smart too? It is with HP+. These printers know when they're running low, so you always get the ink you need delivered right when you need it. Plus, you save up to 50% on ink, so you can print whatever you want, as much as you want, anytime you want. Huh, that is pretty smart. Get six months free of instant ink when you choose HP+. Conditions apply. Visit hp.com smart for details. In a world full of smart devices, isn't it about time your printer got smart too? Now printing is smart with HP+. And the HP Smart app is how it all happens. You can print from your phone with just a tap, no matter where you are, even from your garage slash home office slash yoga studio. Huh, that is smart. HP+. Learn more about smart printing at hp.com slash smart. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing, my chance to talk with artists, policymakers, and performers, to hear their stories, what inspires their creations, what decisions changed their careers, what relationships influenced their work. My guest today is Antonia Juhas, a journalist and activist who wrote an article in the June issue of Harper's Magazine about the 2010 BP oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico. The article is more than an investigation into that monumental disaster. It's a highlight in a career dedicated to investigating the oil industry. For the past 15 years, Juhas has been following oil, the companies that are entrusted with it, the executives who make the decisions about it, and the workers who get the oil out of the ground. People who work within the oil industry are lifers. They start out young, they work their way up through the company. Most of the heads of these companies are people who spent their entire lifetimes within the same companies. And they believe that they are doing the dirty, hard work that someone has to do. Someone has to go out there and go through the muck and go through the mud and do the harm and do all the things that need to happen so that we can drive our lovely cars and they're the ones who are doing it. They also make a lot of money. And from the perspective of working their companies, they're doing a great job. ExxonMobil is the most profitable corporation the world has ever known over and over and over and over again. So if you work in ExxonMobil, you're saying, one, I'm doing the hard, tough work that no one else wants to do, and two, I'm making more money than any company has ever made in the history of the world, so how can you possibly tell me I'm doing a bad job? It's a win-win for everybody. So when you ask them, you know, when you think about the what about you know, the fact that the United Nations says that 80 percent of fossil fuels have to stay in the ground if we're going to avert the worst of climate crisis. You know, what are you doing as a company? What they say is, while we're dependent on oil and fossil fuels, and we are, you need us to do our job. And then sometimes they say— You don't want to get caught up short. You don't want to get caught up short. And then sometimes they say, if you watch their commercials— And we are doing the right thing. Look at all the money we're spending on solar and wind. And look at all the money we spend on human rights. And, you know, Chevron has commercials all the time. What are they spending on solar and wind? So I did an investigation of this because, you know, this is their claim. I'm so happy you said that. (laughs) And? And um, I, I did a piece for this in Rolling Stone. And, you know, the truth is that the oil industry has been 
um, dramatically moving its way out of alternative energy investments if it ever really was invested. The best company was at best, very generously, 4% of total um, of their total expenditures, and that was BP at its height. And I think that was 2008, but I don't have the year memorized. So, and, and that was the best. So the other companies were 0.2%, 0.1%. Exxon basically never even pretended to invest in alternative energy and really hasn't. Um, and a lot of that money was actually in biofuels, not even in, you know, wind or solar. But now the companies have all— Like ethanol. Like they count that? Yeah, they count that. Yeah, right. they count ethanol. They count yeah. ethanol. So, you know, and all the problems uh, attendant with that. But they basically removed themselves from from those sectors as well. So now it's almost nothing. And actually, even speaking of ethanol, BP, which has now almost completely divested from solar and wind, announced the closing of facilities in Louisiana and in San Diego for making cellulosic um, biofuels. So they're even now moving out of um, the biofuel sector, which is you know probably good. And actually, from my perspective, to be honest, you know, oil is a natural resource, just like. Um, the sun and the wind. There are places like the bottom of the ocean where naturally releasing oil actually lives over you know thousands of years in harmony with the environment. What this industry has done is taken a natural resource and turned it into a weapon of mass destruction. So I say, do we really want them to now, because they've done such a bang-up job with oil, do we really want to give them the wind and the sun? Do we really want them doing alternative energy? So my answer is no. And what I would rather say is they haven't done a bang-up job with the resource they've been given. So while we are dependent on their resource, they could do a much, much, much better job of providing it in ways that are much more environmentally and socially and economically beneficial. The 2010 explosion aboard the Deepwater Horizon oil rig killed 11 people and led to a powerful seafloor oil gusher that lasted 87 days. According to the on-scene coordinator report, over 200 million gallons of oil leaked into the Gulf of Mexico. Antonia Yuhas investigated the multiple causes of the disaster later, but on that first day, April 20, 2010, she was far away. April 2010, and I was in San Francisco following oil in the same way that I do, and I saw sort of a blip come across the screen about an explosion in the Gulf of Mexico. And honestly, at first, it didn't ring a lot of bells because, in fact, there's a lot of offshore oil spills, particularly in the Gulf of Mexico. They happen fairly routinely. We don't necessarily pay a lot of attention to them, and there weren't any pictures or anything yet. You know, this is very far out. But when you say offshore oil spills that are routine, routine yeah. means they don't blow up and there's a lot of flames billowing. Yeah, but we didn't know that. So, you know, th- at first— um, So the more routine ones don't involve explosions and flames. Right. Not, not The water, just something erupts and oil goes into the, into the water. Oil spills happen often. Small explosions happen often. Um, so there are—and there is, um, you know, a lot of um, problems that happen with rigs out in the Gulf. As the days unfolded, though, it became clearer and clearer that this was a significant incident, much larger than I had originally thought. And what seemed also clear as the days were moving on was that it wasn't something that was going to be stopped anytime soon. Um, So I was actually contacted by The Guardian to do a piece looking mostly at, because I still didn't have a lot of information, it's still early on, 
you know, now I know why there wasn't information, but at the time I just assumed, you know, we're just sort of learning a little bit at a time because it's not necessarily that big of a deal. I get contacted by The Guardian to do a piece, and the piece is mostly focusing on, is it a surprise that it's BP? So, you know, this happens to a company, is it a surprise that BP is the company? Because BP had just been through... Um, the Texas City refinery disaster, which is was prior to this, uh, one of the worst workplace disasters uh, in U.S. history in the oil sector, 15 refinery workers dead, um, 150 injured. Um, the Alaska pipeline spill had happened, which was a BP pipeline. Not a good time um, for BP. Not a good time for BP. And... Tony Hayward, who was the CEO at the time, had also been and had been for many years facing um, takeover rumors. And one of the reasons for the takeover rumors, which continue to this day, was that BP had had a very low reserve replacement ratio, which means that it wasn't replacing oil at the same speed that it was um, producing it and getting it out of the ground. And that makes it a weak company. So he was being very adventurous in pursuing oil. When you say replacing, what do you mean? Finding new, cycle. finding new fields, new finds, and being able to book them, which means that um, you can prove that you can actually Proven produce fields. the oil. Right. Exactly. So as you're taking oil or extracting oil out of the ground, you want to know there's more out there that you that's yours. Exactly. Exactly. And ready to go. And investors want to know that there's right. more out there, there that there you, you can replace. Right. Um, and so he was extremely adventurous, and also seemed to be more willing than others to. Um, you know, put time and money and profit ahead of other concerns. So when I was first looking at this uh, incident, I said, you know, no, it's not a surprise that it's BP. But then, and so that was the that was the first you know sort of look that I the first look was just the company. Then it kept unfolding, and so then by May, I was down went down to the Gulf Coast and did a tour of the Gulf Coast and started interviewing people, um, started interviewing um, fishermen and fisher folks, started interviewing elected officials, started to you know really try and suss out what's unfolding here. And then that made it increasingly clear because at this point, you know, the, the spill is now um, 20 days in. It's not ending anytime soon. It doesn't look like it's ending, ending anytime soon that not only is this a serious uh, disaster, but there is a huge untold story here of why it happened, um, what's, what, if anything, is going to be able to solve the problem, and what, if anything, is going to be changed in the future. And at that point, I decide to write a book. And I'm like, this is what I'm going to need to do. It's an article isn't going to do it. This can't right. be a short one-off. Yeah. And I— A lot of surface I, area here. Yeah, and there's just way too much, there's just way too much going on. Um, way too many unknowns. And so I begin the process of writing um, a book and continue to write articles at the same time. But the book uh, is Black Tide, The Devastating Impact of the Gulf Oil Spill. And that came out in 2011. And I continued while still covering other issues, including traveling to Afghanistan to cover the role of oil and gas in the war in Afghanistan and other things. Now, when does when – does, uh uh, Atlantis, Alvin, the stuff that's in the Harper's article, when does that enter your windshield? So one of the first people I contact to find out what is the significance of this oil spill, which ultimately becomes the largest offshore oil spill in world history, is Dr. Samantha Joy, um, a biogeochemist at the University of Georgia who everyone tells me from the very beginning is the person to talk to about oil and gas in the Gulf of Mexico. Why? Because she is the person who has um, done the most investigations 
in the field trying to just understand— Honest investigations. Honest investigations. She's not, she's not a, a patsy for the oil companies. Oh, not at all. So you, so you meet her. I meet her. I start interviewing her right away. Um, had she been in the Alvin before? So she she's had. the only person to have led a previous Alvin mission to the site of the oil spill after the oil spill. When did she go? So she went in December 2010. That year. That year. Right. So just so for people who are listening, the Atlantis is the ship and the Alvin is— And now who owns the ship? The U.S. Navy? Um the yeah or what's whole the navy um, owns this fleet of scientific research vessels it's a ship so and the alvin property, the right. submarine and the alvin which is the submersible they own exactly and where's um, woods hole come in woods hole oceanographic institution manages all of okay. all of the above They're like a subcontractor and the alvin submarine is the only human occupied research submarine that exists in the united states anymore it was the first and now it's the last it's been around for 50 years um, it explored the Titanic. It found a nuke that got lost in the in 66. ocean. <laughs> yeah, the so you know bomb. the hydrogen bomb. So yeah. you know, whose hydrogen bomb was it? I can't remember. <laughs> I can look that up. Anyway, go ahead. <laughs> um, but it was lost, and they found it. So she it. booked that trip for you, and you went out when? So um, Alvin goes under forty million dollars worth of refurbishing. It finally gets to go out again, and when she finds out that she's going to get to do the you know the first mission back to the site of the BP oil spill, she wants there to be a journalist with her, and she lets me know that I get to be the one, <laughs> to, to say the least. Well, I was the both time, related scared? and scared. Yeah, yes. Say, what if this thing blows a rivet while I'm down there? They just refurbished it. Well, yeah, Great. and it turns out— let, um, me, let me see that bill for that refurbishing <laughs> of the Alvin. Exactly. Somehow, the refurbishing did not include restroom facilities. Those in need were forced to use a bottle. You can listen to earlier episodes of Here's the Thing by visiting our archives, like my conversation with Dr. Robert Lustig, who talked to me about the growing obesity pandemic and its link to a very different energy source. And we've learned that the higher your insulin goes, the hungrier you get. The hungrier you are. So so sugar is an appetite Stimulant. In a sense. Accelerant, yes. whatever you want to call it. You can call it that. Right. Absolutely. Take a listen at here's the thing.org. Hi, I'm Alec Baldwin. Don't you think it's cool to care? Carrie Yuma knows fast fashion's not sustainable and decided to spin that conscious mindset to create high quality low-impact sneakers. Their best-selling Akka style is the perfect, durable sneaker for dressing up or down, pairing a fresh look with broken-in level comfort. Akka is made with organic cotton canvas and ethically sourced rubber, and every pair comes with Karayuma's signature cork and Mamona oil insoles. Akka's already found its way into my summer shoe rotation. Find your pair and choose from a range of bold and beautiful colors. Right now, there's 15% off at C-A-R-I-U-M-A dot com slash Alec. With how much we rely on our devices, it's easy to forget about the hardware we're born with. Take ears. Like fingerprints, your ears are totally unique. Too bad your earbuds aren't. Unless you've got Ultimate Ears Fits True Wireless Custom Fit Earbuds. Ultimate Ears Fits offer premium sound and all-day comfort. Their groundbreaking lifeform technology guarantees a perfect fit in only 60 seconds. Just put in the earbuds, connect to the app, and watch as the purple LEDs form the earbuds to your unique shape. 
with eight hours of continuous playback on a single charge and up to 20 hours with the charging case, Ultimate Ears Fits are the perfect choice for listening to your favorite music and podcast all day long without pain or discomfort. For a limited time, get 15% off above the current offer of your pair of Ultimate Ears Fits True Wireless Earbuds at ue.com slash fits. Just use promo code FITS at checkout. That's 15% off the current offer with promo code FITS at ue.com slash FITS. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. To better understand the impact of the 2010 BP oil spill, Antonia Uhas joined biogeochemist Samantha Joy last year in a submersible that traveled over 5,000 feet down to reach the bottom of the Gulf of Mexico. It took two hours to get down. The total trip was, the total trip in the album was eight, so five hours on the bottom. So you were five hours down there yeah. with her. Yeah. You'd been there before. Yes. What did she say to you? She said, you know, um, the first time she went down, there was nothing. All the sea life that could get away from the oil got away from the oil, and everything that couldn't, in her words, was nuked. It just got pummeled. We come back down. Refugee sea life. Refugee sea life. Right. Um, and basically what I see is a moonscape. It's basically there's nothing. There's basically nothing down there. Which was not normal. No. I mean, normally you would see um, corals, sea fans, fish, even sharks and whales inhibit. flora and fauna, if you will. You know, it's not like an underwater Amazon. This is the deep, dark bottom. Exactly. But, you know, there would have been a lot more life. There should have been a lot more life. There's nothing. So what we saw is is a little bit of a change. So there was the occasional sea life that came through. And so that was positive. There were giant isopods, which are basically foot-long cockroaches. That was exciting to see float by. Uh, I saw a couple of those. Um, no, wait a second. It's a fish that resembles a cockroach? It is an underwater cockroach. It's really? an, It's called an isopod. Really? Yeah. Who knew they existed? And I'm not entirely sure and that I'm happy survive. to know that they, they always existed. say cockroaches are going to survive Exactly. Everything. So the, the giant cockroaches survived. We also saw, which was amazing, um, one um, vampire squid, which is this... Um, long squid that has a red head, and it went zooming by, and um, that thrilled um, uh, Dr. Joy because those are incredibly rare to see. We saw the occasional eel, an occasional crab, a little teeny, um, like, blue and pink fish, but mostly it was nothing. I mean, this was the occasional occurrence. and Maybe something that had wandered in there accidentally. They just, like, sort of made their way, you know, in. What we... Should have seen. We should have seen a lot more. But what is not good is that what was also out there is um, three thousand miles worth of oil. Right, now you know. Let, let, let's. I yeah. want to nail these facts down for people. Yeah. You said. Did you say it was an inch or two thick the bed? At most. Um, at, at its greatest depths, it's two inches thick. So at its greatest depths, this carpet. Carpet of oil. Of oil near the site is three thousand square miles, sixty miles by or whatever. Whether it's shaped like an American flag or— It's the size of Delaware and Rhode Island combined. Right. So this isn't just around the site. This is a huge um, carpet of oil that has been there for four years. No, no, no. I want to ask you a couple of questions based on that. Yeah. There's a lot of myth-making here and and urban uh, legend, if you will. 
The myth that got circulated was that all the oil was gone because the bugs ate it, right? That's or we're going circulated, to eat it. or we're going to eat it, and that was well circulated. It was circulated by a scientist who was funded by BP to come up with that information. Who is that scientist? I should know his name, and I'm forgetting it right now. I, I, that's bad. So a scientist funded by BP said eventually the bugs are going to eat the oil. I mean, he said initially that they've eaten most, you of know, it. most of it, and. Um, and that they've, e- they've eaten most of it. I'm not positive that he said they're going to continue eating, but he definitely said they've eaten most of it. Now, what happens to oil that bonds, if it does bond, what happens to oil that corrects it is applied to? Because as most people know who are listening to this program, they know that the Gulf was sprayed. Uh, in my, uh, my friend has a great phrase, in my conspiranoia <laughs> reality that I live in, um, the, uh, my friend said that uh, they sprayed the corrected on there to get the oil out of the way so that the media couldn't see it. That was my probably my greatest disappointment in Obama, that he allowed them to not have the press come and photograph and videotape and report honestly what happened, that all the uh, press had to stay away from the site. I thought that was the most disgraceful thing that Obama ever did in his administration. I mean, we were—I was regularly, you know, threatened by police for trying to go to beaches to cover spill sites. Um, people who wanted to volunteer to take us out in boats were told that they would be fined sixty thousand dollars for doing so and be sent to jail. Um, fortunately, some people were so concerned with getting the truth out that they still brought myself and other journalists out into the trouble? water. Um, I don't—I mean. You don't know. I don't know. Hopefully not. Not the ones that were kind enough to help me. And people, you know, were paid. So it was, you know, they, they were desperate for, for income and they were risking, you know, a dollar in the hand for the threat of a $60,000 fine because they were desperate and needed it. But, you know, I mean, the, the obstacles were great in so trying what, to cover this story. So what happens to the corrects that applied to the oil? So two million gallons of corrects that are applied. So part of the story a here of dispersant, it's a, it's, a, it's a chemical dispersant. Part of the story is that the only thing that BP had prepared for and that actually any oil company operating the Gulf had prepared for was oil um, on the surface of the ocean. And it's very common to apply a little bit of Corexit to a little bit of oil on the surface. The idea is to that you do want to break it up because you don't want animals to get caught in it. You also don't want it floating to shore. Oil is toxic. You don't want humans coming into contact with it. And the idea is that you, know, you apply a little at the top. And it's some harm to the water, but it's worth it. But this was a totally unprecedented oil sure. spill in size and scope and depth. And for the first time ever, the Corexit, because they'd only planned for something at the top, not expecting a three-month-long oil spill, they although they the should have. They the site with Corexit, basically. They applied it at the bottom of the ocean. Oh. So they sprayed it at the site of the spill. So you had this huge cocktail, toxic cocktail, of the toxic Corexit combined with the toxic Oil And what studies have found is that, in fact, the combination of the two is at least 50% more toxic than either alone. And the only thing that the Corexit is supposed to do is disperse. That's all it's even meant to do. So what you're choosing to do— Who manufactures Corexit, do you know? Um, As your research Norelco manufactures Corexit, yeah. And they, for a very long time, refused to release all of the um, chemical components of Corexit, and they also refused have to— Have they since? I think they have since. And they also refused to make it available to scientists to do their own research on to be able to study the impacts, and I believe that has also since ended. But what they did was basically intentionally 
sacrifice the ocean in an attempt to protect the shore. But, of course, they failed at both because they also hadn't prepared to protect the shore. So not only did they apply all of this uh, chemical to the ocean, but the oil also did, of course, make its way to the shore, as did now the chemically infused, Corexit-infused oil make it to shore. Now, when you talk about Corexit, you said that oil is leaking into the Gulf as a matter of course constantly. And the system has survived, and even uh, at its most, uh, I don't want to say pristine, but at its most natural, at its least impacted, there's still some oil coming out of the bottom of the Gulf because there's oil all over the Gulf, and that just is how the ecosystem operates and exists. But Corexit is not something that comes out of the ground. Corexit is a toxic chemical that's applied. Now, two million gallons of this substance poured into the Gulf of Mexico on top of that site is I'm going to guess that spit in the ocean in terms of how it breaks down into the into the body of water. But has there been any research done to determine what Corexit itself has done to wildlife and to the so it, is, it, that, is that two inch layer there? Because you said that they, they commingled the Corexit with it at the site. Yeah, they 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 shot it into the stream of oil at the site, correct? At the, at the, That's at, right. At the wellhead. That's right. And when they did that, is that layer of oil on the ground? Is that bonded with Corexit? Has anybody done any tests about that? Yeah, there is. Um, Corexit, Corexit, and the oil have both stayed and are likely to stay forever because the bottom of the ocean is a dark, cold place. It's yeah. like the and best the freezer, yeah, in sure. the world. And so it's not going anywhere. It's not going anywhere, but also. Um, what's left of the oil, essentially, so there there are um, microbes that have developed over millennia that have feasted on this, and just to make this clear, very teeny, teeny, tiny amount of naturally releasing oil that comes out of the Gulf of Mexico in very, very small amounts. And over millennia, communities have developed around this oil, and they have thrived because it's small, and it's a natural occurrence, and there's time for the species to commingle with the oil. So there are these naturally occurring microbes that do eat the oil. But they ate as much as they could, and it was only a small amount. But also they only ate what they could. So what they left behind is also the most toxic parts of the oil. It's what they didn't want to eat. And these are called polycyclic uh, aromaic hydrocarbons, which are um, the most toxic part of the oil, um, carcinogens known to be uh, cancer-causing humans. This is the stuff that's at the bottom. This is what's at the bottom. With the Corexit. So the Corexit's down there as well. As well. Now, how would you characterize BP's response to this, what you've observed? Well, I'm— uh, Initially and down the road. We know now through the court case that um, BP, first of all, lied when it said that it was prepared for a blowout, for a deep water blowout. It actually had said in its uh, exploration plan to drill that it could handle a blowout almost three times as large as the oil spill that actually ended up happening. And it was, in fact, totally unprepared. It also then lied about how much oil was being released every day yeah, from the oil well. Remember. It also had said that it could handle the oil spill, which to me, which also implies that it could stop the oil spill. But it turns out that the only method that it had available for stopping the oil spill, it and every other oil company, by the way, operating in the Gulf of Mexico, was the only thing they already knew how to do, which is also the most dangerous thing, which is drill another well. It took 152 days to drill another well. That's the only thing that permanently stopped right, the well. To pour the sand in. First, they did the thing where they tried the um, 
uh, the top hat, which was throwing, when I mean, we saw this on jokes made about it on TV because it was laughable. It's things that work in shallow water, 400 feet. This was 5,000 feet. So throwing golf balls and, and tire and uh, tire, rubber, tire, rubber from tires onto it. What should they have done? Where have you seen examples of this going? Obviously not to that level because the Deepwater Horizon is an anomaly, I'm assuming, correct, in terms of scope. Yes. But where you've seen these kinds of things, where have you seen something effective that's worked? That's not golf balls. I mean, what do they do? So what's come out since is that there is another temporary method that they should have known about and should have had ready, they and every other company. Again, this isn't just BP. So I went into this story thinking— So BP is a company that really—they were the unlucky ones. It could have happened to any of them. It could and still could. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. But I want to get back to this thing, which is where have you seen this? Because it's one thing to say— there's something that they should have known after the fact. But at the time that it happened, what information did they have? Because I want to be fair to them as well. At the time that it happened, what information did they have where you've seen other people do this better? That someone's done it better, there isn't an example. What they all did know, however, there are very clear examples. So um, what they all knew, all the companies knew, was that the thing that they're depending on the most, which is something called the blowout preventer, which is the huge piece of equipment that sits on top of a well that's supposed to, when there is a blowout, prevent it by shutting in the well. So it's called the blowout preventer. That these pieces of equipment only had about a 50% success rate. This is the last line of defense. They also should have, and this is something that is just them, uh, they should have had it running as properly as it could have. So one of the things we also know is that they had allowed the batteries on the blowout preventer to run out. Literally, it had old Batteries. Does that affect them in court? Did they pay for that in court? So they didn't get their hands chopped off for that. They were so. So I guess there's 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 three pieces of the litigation. The first BP was found grossly negligent and definitely got in trouble by the judge for, in the judge's words, putting profits above everything else, and that was in what led to the blowout. So BP made decision after decision after decision on the rig. And I guess in this circumstance, yes, there there are things that other companies have done better that they could have done better, where they were trying to save time, trying to save money, and just making um, you know very, very, very poor decisions time and time again that contributed, that made the blowout happen. And so for that, the judge found them grossly negligent. But everything that came after, meaning their inability to stop the blowout, their inability to clean it up, their decision to apply 2 million gallons of Corexit, their inability to keep it from hitting the the shore and killing 100,000 animals, for that, the judge said, no other company knows how to do it any better than you did, which means not at all. And the government didn't require you to do it any better. So you and everybody else gets a pass on everything that came after. The judge said that. So where we're now coming to is the third phase of trial where the judge is now going to say how much BP owes, and it could be as much as almost $14 billion for all of the oil that was released into the Gulf of Mexico, but it could be as little as $140,000. So that's why this low end is is very important, and that's why the fact that it's important that the judge said that BP made very poor decisions, including allowing the blowout preventer to run out of batteries— that it was grossly negligent for doing that. And as well as Halliburton and Transocean were also found um, negligent for their parts, you know, two of the largest companies uh, in the world. Um, How much was Halliburton fined? Halliburton, 
I'm not positive. I, okay. I'm, they were fine something, correct? I think they reached a settlement, BP. but okay. I'm not positive. They settled. Yeah, okay. I'm not positive where they're at with okay. their case. I'm pretty sure they settled. Now, you studied these companies for quite a while now. Yeah. You've covered this industry for 15 years or more. Mm-hmm. You're at the bottom of the – you're in the submersible. Mm-hmm. And all of the fears of that aside and everything, but with your knowledge of what's going on and why and what isn't happening and why. And you're with this woman who's this colleague of yours, this revered colleague Mm -hmm. from the University of Georgia, Dr. Joy. What did you think when you were down there? Did it upset you? Oh, yeah. I mean, I would say certainly— Are you completely uh, 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 cynical about it or does any of it really upset you? Oh, it always upsets me. (laughs) I mean, you know, I can't— I can't tell you every day there's something new that I learn uh, about this disaster uh, that still continues to uh, depress me and shock me. And when I was down there, I was unbelievably depressing. I, I, I looked out of the window. Uh, I was at the bottom of the ocean. You know, this incredible, unthinkable opportunity. And it's a, you know, basically a virtual dead zone. And not only are we down there and there's lots of time to reflect, but suddenly we see tracks in the ground, which are parallel, which means that they're clearly uh, man-made. And that signals that not only is there this dead zone, but somebody's laying cable down there, which means that I later come to learn they're getting ready to drill again in the exact same area. So the federal government has divided up this lease area, sold it to another company called LLOG without any public awareness uh, or, you know, debate. Um, LLOG gets basically almost the entire lease and the rights to produce oil off of it. And and they um, are now—and and people aren't also paying attention because instead of going in in the exact same spot so you could see a rig, they're over an adjacent lease area drilling from the adjacent lease area and then cutting horizontally under the ground into <laughs> the original area— And this all, they wrote a plan. It took less than a month for the Department of Interior to okay the plan. It looks remarkably and and depressingly similar to the same plan that BP had drawn up originally. And everything is just um, literally back, you know, back to business as usual. What hope do you think there is for uh, accelerating renewable production in this country? Well, I mean, first of all, The U.S. government subsidizes the oil industry to the tune of hundreds of billions of dollars every year. So there's lots of money there. They don't need it. They're the wealthiest industry the world has ever known. We can take those subsidies. Those can be applied to alternative energy. Um, We can also, you know, I think it, it absolutely is something that can be done and should be done at the local level. So if we look at local consumption, reducing local consumption of energy and providing energy at the local level, I think you'll also come up with more um, uh, potential resources made available and partnering with government with federal government resources. But there's a lot of money out there that can be um, successfully cut out of the budget that's being used to subsidize and support the fossil fuel industry that I think almost everyone would agree is unnecessary, and that money, at a minimum, can be directed to so alternative you think energy. the government is still it has a role. key player? Not the only player, but right. it has a role. Okay. It certainly has a role to play. Antonia Juhasa's article on the repercussions of BP's oil spill is in the June issue of Harper's Magazine. Lately, Juhas has been following the protests surrounding the polar pioneer, Shell's giant offshore oil rig for Rolling Stone. I called Antonia up to learn the latest. Um, we wanted to um, add a 
comment from you about two events that I've been tracking recently, which I'm obviously are playing to you. And the first one is the Santa Barbara spill. When I was reading that story and following that story, it led us to corrosion in the infrastructure of those pipes. And, I, and I'm wondering, is that something that, that's pretty common now? Should we expect this to happen more often, or is there, there the possibility? Is, is Santa Barbara an isolated incident, or no? Um, no, Santa Barbara isn't isolated for a number of reasons. The first being that corrosive old pipes is actually a huge problem throughout our oil and gas system. There are spills related to problems with pipelines, pipeline ruptures, including corrosion that happen all over the United States all the time. And in fact, in 2014, there were more of those spills than at any time in at least the last 20 years. And that's partly because we're moving more product um, through the pipes, but also because the pipes are, you know, just get older every year. And, um, you know, disasters like what happened in Santa Barbara are actually, unfortunately, quite common. I remember when I first went to Santa Barbara to visit uh, from L.A. I was living in L.A. many, many years ago, and I went up there to check it out. And when I was staying at one specific hotel, they had cleaning solvent, and they had cloths that you used to take the tar balls off your and the oil blobs off your feet because a lot of that stuff washed up periodically on the beaches. It was a very common occurrence. It was very regular. Now, was that area still as busy and is still as productive an oil field off the coast of California? Is that still humming the way it has been for many decades now? Yeah, there's you know a lot of oil and gas um, off the shores of California in general, but um, Santa Barbara in particular. That area is actually the birthplace of offshore oil drilling um, in the United States going back um, to the late 1800s. But oil spills are also, um, unfortunately, common. And actually, one of the largest offshore oil disasters in the United States before the Deepwater Horizon happened in 2010 happened in 1969 in Santa Barbara. And that was a huge offshore blowout um, that led to 3 million gallons of oil spilled and led to a movement to put in place moratoriums against offshore oil drilling first in the waters right off Santa Barbara, but then the moratorium spread and they affected almost everywhere except for the U.S. Gulf of Mexico and parts of Alaska where drilling was allowed to continue. But the existing offshore operations off California were grandfathered in. So there still are these platforms that we see um, when you're um, you know, in Santa Barbara. And it's actually from one of those old grandfathered in platforms, actually two of them, one from ExxonMobil and another operated by a much smaller company called Veneco, that this oil spill actually happened because the oil is piped into shore through subsea pipelines. Then once it gets to shore, it's put into a processing facility. Then it travels along this onshore pipeline. And it was along the onshore leg that the rupture happened. The oil then spilled onto the beach and into the ocean. Um, when you mention Alaska, the next question becomes your thoughts about Obama permitting drilling 
in, and I want you to name the region more specifically up in the Arctic, where, what is the area, describe for us what is the area in the sea where Obama has now said they can have underwater drilling? Yeah, well, now um, in the Chukchi Sea, which is um, off of Alaska in the Arctic, a part of Alaska that's heavily inhabited by indigenous populations and a broad diversity of wildlife, um, including polar bears and walruses and hundreds of different of bird and fish species. Um, and, also, and, and also describe, if you would, the conditions of the water in the dead of winter there. It's freezing water. Um, huge blocks of ice are primarily what you find here in the, in the winter, not, not really water per se, but rather, you know, ice sheets. Um, and they're supposed to be solid. Of course, global warming is making that less common. But that's why when Obama uh, opened this area to offshore drilling, what that meant, what it's supposed to mean, is that the only time that the companies can drill is a very small window when there's actually you know, open water there for them to drill in. So that's uh, the summer months. And going only as late as October is their only opportunity um, for when they are allowed to drill because it is such a cold, frozen, harsh, uh, really unprecedented type of environment to try to engage in offshore oil drilling in. But I also read somewhere that it's very rough seas up there in the wintertime, correct? That's right. Very rough water. Exactly. Rough water. um, Very deep distances between where, you know, the Coast Guard is stationed, where um, there, there are pockets of, you know, land and, and places where people are. Where emergency services might come from, where, where help might come from, right? What do you think it was, if you can say, that uh, prompted Obama to make that ruling? Shell is the largest oil company in the world. It's the oil company that's had leases in this area for a very long time, and it's been trying to develop this area for a very long time, and the reason why it hasn't is because its operations keep running into problems. It keeps trying and failing. And, you know, the Obama administration is still engaged in this incredibly dangerous, what it calls the all, all of the above energy strategy, which is a, you know, I believe a really false belief that you can simultaneously support alternatives and biofuels and you know, clean energy advancements and regulation at the same time as allowing the industry to go anywhere and everywhere it wants all of the time. And, you know, don't take my word for it now, take the Pope's word for it, um, that, you know, we really can't follow both of those, both of those paths at the same time and keep the planet inhabitable for our species. But, you know, there's a lot of money in the oil industry. <laughs> and I, you know, think that the political influence there is ultimately what, um, you know, wins out. Antonia, thank you so much for taking my phone call. And again, thank you for being a part of our broadcast. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. This is Alec Baldwin. You're listening to Here's the Thing. Some cars are comfy on the inside, but don't have power on the outside. And some cars have the horsepower, but none of the comfort. I used to think there weren't any cars that were the total package. But that all changed when I got my Honda SUV. 
It's rugged and sophisticated. And right now, Honda has deals on the entire Honda SUV lineup. CRV, HRV, Pilot, Passport, you name it. So if you're looking for a car that's the total package, the only place you'll find it is at your local Honda dealer. Hurry before they're all gone. Don't think that you know everything about your child because there's something that they're not telling you. If I knew that this was going on, I would have went out there and brought my child back home. When Africa Hardy died in 2014, it seemed completely random, but it wasn't. It was part of a pattern. This is Algorithm, a podcast investigating a modern serial killer and how he could have been stopped. Listen to Algorithm now on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite shows.